Welcome to TAIP Conversations, a series of discussions of issues surrounding the international early childhood education community in Japan. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the TAIP Conversations, a discussion about issues affecting the international preschool community in Japan. Today, we'll be talking about a topic that is not necessarily specific to our location, but it is certainly a timely topic that we can all relate to, and that is learning through play. Before we get started on this interesting discussion, I'd like to ask our guests today to introduce themselves, starting with Christy. Christy? Okay, thanks for having me with you. Um, my name is Christy Carrillo. I'm the director at the American School in Japan Early Learning Center. Um, this is my fifth year in Japan and I think 15th year plus in education. And this list level is by far uh, the most fascinating and interesting. Um, love, love working with early years. Great, thanks Christy. And John? Yes, my name is John Aduru and I'm the assistant director at Ohana International School. I've been teaching here in Japan for like seven years now. And before that I was in Shanghai for eight years. So total of 15 years all in all as an educator and uh, a director. <laughs> so nice to meet y'all. Great, thank you so much, John. And my name is Maretta Kropp and I'm currently serving as the secretary on the board of TAIP. And I'm also the principal of Komazawa Park International School. But thank you both for being here today. And let's jump right into our discussion. So play means many things to different people. What is your working definition of play and how is it defined in your setting? John, do you wanna take that one first? All right, so I think like play is like a stage for the children to kind of like really showcase what they can do as individuals, you know? So for me, it's very important to kind of like get that stage and see that stage for them and to see how they perform and how they kind of like um, entertain you with lots of, you know, like amazing abilities that they can do. So I think like play-based learning is pretty much, I would, I don't want to say that it's really like a watered down thing of, of early childhood education, but actually it's the core of the early childhood education. And I just, I just feel like, you know, in some schools, they really use this like play-based learning as kind of like just a part of their, um, you know, marketing strategy. Oh, we're using this because we try to kind of like, you know, get in people and parents to kind of like get involved. But actually like at the core of it, you have to really identify like, are your teachers doing like really play-based learning? Do they really know what's behind the deeper meaning of this kind of like approach to early childhood education? And it's very important for us to really think deeper as educators on how to kind of like see this stage for the children, you know? So I think like it's really a matter of, of, of experience, you know, for the teachers and of course like studies. I really believe like if you studied about early childhood education, you would really get the, the gist and, you know, the fears behind it and the approaches that they've used in the past that really worked well and it's still happening now. And the current trends are kind of like keep on going and, you know, like approaching here and there. So I think like if you really update yourself each and every time, because you have this knowledge of early childhood education, it will benefit not just you as a professional, but also like the entire school community. Great, yeah, I agree. Thanks, John. 
Thank and you. how about for you, Christy? Yeah, we, um, you know, we consider play as the work of the kids. Mm. Um, everything that, everything that we aspire to do is driven by children's play. And in play, you really are able to develop insights um, into a child's curiosity, wonderings, interests. Mm -hmm. um, and you're able to use those as that, as that platform to then extend and really build a child's um, capacity to ask questions or to create or to wonder, um, to do. And it offers insights, um, not only into their, their thinking, their working theories, their development, um, but also their, their stage and where they're going next um, into their social emotional development. You can see what they're wondering about through their role play. Um, it, it just offers so many, so many insights and entry points um, into child development. And so we spend most, I would say most of the day um, in a state of play and mm -hmm. it places um, it places a lot of creative responsibility on the adults in the room because you're really um, you have to be very engaged and very observant open-minded um, and really thinking about what is it that the kids are thinking about um, what are they showing me through this and what's next what can we mm. what can we do together and so play is that foundation yeah, uh, for their development, for insight, um, and for construction of, of learning projects. And so that's, but really it's, it's the work of the kids. Great, thank you. Um, that actually leads me to my next question is, you know, not all play is the same. So what different kinds of play do children in your setting typically engage in? John? Okay, um, because like we've got the youngest group in, at Ohana, so I teach the youngest group. So that would be like around 15 month old children to two years. So like they have less verbal communication, but I, they, they, can, they can communicate, you know, they're, they're very, um, their communicative process is like really right there because they can really use their body gestures and all that facial expressions and everything. But what is really like um, interesting in this age group is that you really have to look and observe what they're doing. Because like for, for the older groups, they have this language development already given to you and you can just hear their conversations, you know? But for the little ones, you know, it's really like for the most part, we see the parallel play, solo play, onlooking play, and observational play. So what I really what I really like about the observational play is sometimes they try to emulate what the other child is doing. So for example, like because we also we have mixed age groups, like for 15 months to two and a half. So the two and a half year old children, they have their own thing, like they 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 do like whatever they love doing in the classroom, like dramatic play, they put on costumes, they they do some kitchen wares and all that. And then these like 15 month old children, they're kind of like what is he doing? What is this child doing? I want to see, I want to, I want to find out, you know, how about if I copy him? And then the relationship starts to kind of like, you know, build up in that kind of sense, because like when the two and a half child, you know, saw this, this um, child doing, you know, the same thing as 
what she was doing or he was doing. So they kind of like, okay, here's what you need to do. So I give you a cup, I give you a spoon, I give you like something to, 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 to put in there and let's play together. So that starts up with the cooperative play. Mm -hmm. So there are like so many stages that I really like to, to emphasize in, 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 in this conversation because like um, for the most part, we expect children straight away to have the cooperative play. I've, I've, I've heard, I've asked, I mean, like many parents have asked me like, um, is my child playing with somebody in the classroom? So that's a very common, very common question that I always get from the parents. And I told them like, you know, like there are stages of play that we need to understand first before they play together. You know, if they're sitting with, you know, like beside each other, that's already like a, a, a simple connection that is trying to build up in the end. And I think like what is really important for us to understand is like to educate the parents about the stages of play as well, because they feel like um, they're losing this piece of information for them to fully understand like how the child develops in terms of, of like social interaction, um, regulation of their emotions, and also understanding their, their, their sense of self. You know, so and I, I just I just feel like, you know, for the for the parents, they, they need this kind of like they need our help to kind of like give 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 the, the necessary information for them to fully understand so that, you know, in the end, they can be an advocate also of play based learning. You know, so and I just feel like there are so many stages that I can explain right now because, you know, I've been studying <laughs> I've been studying this for the longest time and I feel like um, the most important thing that for us educators to do is to kind of like really educate the parents about the stages of play. And I think like solo play is fine, onlooking, observational, parallel, and then cooperative play in the end, you know, they, they, they will play with each other in the end. So, <laughs> you know, so it's, it's inevitable. Great. Thanks for bringing that up. <laughs> yeah, that's I, that's a great, great uh, insight and overview of just the stages mm. um, of play as children develop. And it's it's interesting you talk about parent education and how important that is so that they can advocate for time for play. Mm. Um, we start a little bit older, three, three through six-year-olds, and then they continue on into elementary, middle, high. Um, and advocating for time for play is something um, parents need to do all the way through. And so, yeah, John, you did a, I mean, it's a really great overview of those stages. Mm. And then um, from there, you know, our language changes and our expectations of school and children change. But really when they're at their most successful um, and they're most fulfilled as a student is when they're playing even when they get older. Um, and so the language that we use starts to change, but we go from, from cooperative play and extending play and then creative play, productive. Um, but as they move up in their years, um, inquiry-based learning, project-based learning, mm. um, student-directed learning, all of those things, I'm constantly telling parents, all of those are play. It's just a slightly more, uh, you know, it's more grown up terms, more elementary, mm -hmm. middle or high school terms. Um, and then for the parents, another parallel I draw is when, when do they feel they're most fulfilled? Um, and so that as adults, I mean, we don't, we don't think we're, we don't think we're able to play anymore um, because mm -hmm. we're grown ups. 
but so much of our fulfilled time as adults is when we're playing. And so I, a question I always ask is, who in your world is the most um, is the most fulfilled and successful? Not successful financially, but successful in their life. They love what they do, and they enjoy every day. And I pull those parallels back to say well, that's play. Um, and it's it's so for our little ones, we're building that um, by honoring their their need to play and go through those stages and giving them that confidence um, and that I, that identity as self directed learners. We're giving them the confidence and the foundation for being self-directed and, and, and playing um, throughout their lives. And hopefully that gives them the capacity to really grow up to be fulfilled older students and fulfilled adults. That's a super great point. I really like that um, ask, idea of asking the parents who's fulfilled in their life because it really is often the people who are the most playful. Um, or who are able to be the most creative in their thinking and uh, finding those ideas and, and acting on them and being self-starters. And that's what we want to see in our kids when they're playing at school when, in early childhood years. Um, that actually makes me think about another question here is, um, you know, sometimes we get kids who come to school and they've been very directed in their lives up until the time that they come to the classroom and they haven't been given that freedom of choice or the freedom to explore and get started on their own. So how do you help that child who comes to school, even maybe age two or age four, um, who just doesn't know what to do and mm -hmm. thinks you need to tell me what to do else I won't it wants that step-by-step -step direction. How do you deal with that in your setting? I just feel like, you know, let's go back to basics with Vygotsky's um, zone of proximal development. You know, so I, I think it's really important for, for us to kind of like really model the first stages of play for the children. Because um, especially what you mentioned earlier, like these children, they, they are very directed by their parents or by the previous um, um, preschool that they went to so they kind of like you know have no picture of the clear definition of the essence of play so for us teachers it's our um, responsibility to to develop playfulness in them you know so and I think like in developing playfulness for the teachers you should have this passion and also the inspiration and intrinsic motivation that you have inside so that it will reflect to your personality and the children will kind of like really sense it. Because uh, for me, children, they're like very sensitive creatures, you know, they can really see and feel and hear what you're saying, you know? So, and I feel for, 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 the, for us teachers, we have to really understand that if, if you see a child who's kind of like clueless of what he needs to be doing in the, in the classroom, you have to really um, start off with the guided play. So it's, it's more like, you know, setting up materials on the table and on the floor and then show them how to play with them first, especially for the 15 month old children. They, they just kind of like, you know, do whatever they like, but sometimes they just kind of like look at you. So especially in transitioning period, 
they they were just kind of like screaming and crying and all that you know for us the first um two weeks of of of, of school is more like um a chorus i i call it like a, there's a choir inside the room <laughs> because they're all crying so um but i think like you know with the help of of music um as you can see, I've got my piano in here. I practice the piano and I play the guitar in the classroom, and it really suits their um, the atmosphere of of the classroom. And as long as you can kind of like have this um, um, welcoming personality and welcoming atmosphere in the classroom, you would really find that niche that the children will build that sense of sense of trust and and security. Um, and I feel like once you build that with out of love out of your out of love and out of your passion um, i think the children will feel like oh okay i'm welcome in this um in this group and i think i can be who i am you know so and i, I think like in that sense they would really understand that they belong to to the family and then then they are welcome to do whatever they want to do and of course like with the guidance of the teachers and the, the people around them you know so and I feel it, it all starts with the teachers and how you kind of like really, really have to understand the needs of, of the children. So it's always that the mm. relationships that you build mm. and the sense of belonging that you create yes. for the kids. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so true. It's that um, spending the time, especially at the beginning, to really build that mm. sense of community and belonging. Mm. And it gives children that safe space. Um, and builds that relationship with um, between children and teacher and then among children. Um, and it's, it's, it's an important time. I think one of the time and space are two of the things that we provide a lot of to help children um, transition and develop play skills. Um, yeah. And it can be scaffolding um, the language of play um, it can be scaffolding or teaching uh, different ways to explore with materials. And for a child who's coming from a very directed background, um, it's, it's shaping the what if question and making that wondering and that uncertainty the objective, um, that there is no right answer and there is no there isn't um, a proper way for this thing to turn out. Um, and so lots of, lots of open-ended materials mm -hmm. and lots of questions. And helping the children to craft their questions sometimes is important. Um, just those starters of well, what might happen if, or what do you think this will do? Um, Four-year-olds love and blocks and marble mm. and just experimenting and letting them know that yeah, that's okay that's that's the objective there is no right answer um the objective is wondering and understanding and that's that's kind of the the hard thing when a child comes from a directed um background is that that flame that curiosity is already mm. starting to dim and so it's trying to re reignite that um mm -hmm. and we'll um we also do some some social engineering um grouping children introducing children to each other to create those different um those different thought processes and introducing um 
you know, introducing conflicting opinions and ideas and personalities so that mm -hmm. they, they learn to really enjoy the, the creative process and that you know, those, those lifelong skills that later on we're talking about communication and collaboration, but in, in early years, it's just that language of play and being able to ask questions and to understand that there's multiple, um, multiple perspectives and outcomes mm -hmm. for something. So I think, I mean, time, space, scaffolding, lots and lots of open-ended um, mm. open materials. Yeah, that's great. Um, for some kids and parents too, it's really, it takes a long time for them to get used to that feeling of not having a right answer or to mm. get used to the, the, the questioning or not, not having the objective that you don't know when you reach the objective, because you don't know what the objective is. And that's really hard um, for, for families, I think. Mm. But you're and, right, the time mm. and the space and, Sorry, the supporting and the support, all of that really plays into it. And I like also the idea of social engineering, mm. a really powerful tool to use with kids. Mm -hmm. um, on a slightly different topic, but um, within play, uh, one thing that can sometimes be controversial among educators and parents is the idea of risky or rough and tumble play or adventure play. So what do you see as some of the benefits to encouraging this kind of play in an early childhood setting and what might be some of the drawbacks? Christy? Yeah, interesting. Um, Risk-taking and independence are, are so critical, um, not only to development, um, but also a child's identity. Mm -hmm. And that sense of, I can do this, um, mm -hmm. or I can figure this out. And so, um, you know, our approach is as safe as it can be, mm -hmm. um, but, we allow our children in the classroom, for example, to use scissors, um, to use glue guns, to um, help with cooking. Mm -hmm. um, so they're cutting and doing things. And we always have you know, adults there with them and we show them how to do something, um, but we give them the, the independence and that freedom to do it themselves. Mm -hmm. And that's, uh, that's really important for their, really for their identity. Um, we build, we construct a lot in the classroom and it can be, if you walk in at an, at a, an interesting moment, you might see a child, um, on a ladder or a child trying to string or do, now I'm thinking more of our four and five, our five-year-olds, our kindergarten classes as they're building and constructing. Um, but we're always careful to really to talk about the process Mm -hmm. and the responsibility and the expectations and the risks. Um, out on the playground, you know, we, we have lots of, lots of free play and the kids have access to uh, bars and slides and a climbing wall and rope climbing and tricycles, bicycles. Um, and there it's really, it's really important that children are able to take to take physical risks mm -hmm. because it's so critical for their for their development, their gross and fine motor skills. And then um, something I always explain to parents is how those pieces come together 
to help later on with something we take for granted, like just sitting and reading a book or sitting down and writing. Um, that those core skills or that ability to know where your body is in space um, or to cross the midline, all of that develops naturally when, when you have opportunity, but it's so essential to their later development as well. And so that's, that's one of the ways that we kind of walk through what's, what's acceptable risk uh, in an mm. classroom. Yeah, that's a that's a good term to use. Acceptable risk. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. John. Yes. Um. I always tell the teachers like when you're in the classroom, you have to have a set of ten eyes. <laughs> so I think like it's it's really common like you should have eyes on your back and you know like to see to to really see the full picture of the classroom because I think um, since that I also have a nursing background, you know, like it's it's pretty interesting to, to kind of like relate this to early childhood education because, you know, as a nurse, you always have to be alert at all times, you know, like providing a safe and, and um, secure environment for the children is really not an easy feat for, 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 for the teachers to, to, to have. Because I feel like, you know, especially in the youngest group, you know, they love hugging, they love the rough and tumble play, they love to kind of like crawl in really tiny spaces and all that. Um, and but for us, like we really need to understand like what Christy said earlier is like the acceptable risks that we we should promote in the classroom, and actually like the teachers can actually promote that. You know, they can we can do like for example like a simple shelf. You can actually you know like for example if you take out some stuff from the shelf and you would see children crawling there, you know, <laughs> in and out. So I think as long as you know what's happening. And, um, and I would suggest like to kind of like observe first rather than jumping in because sometimes the teachers were like, oh no, what's gonna happen next? You know, so sometimes you gotta have to step back and look and observe if it's gonna be so dangerous for the child. But if it's just kind of like, oh, okay, I think this child can do it. So you have to have that sense of timing and also that sense of, of feeling that, oh, okay, so I think um, give them, you know, set them up for success, you know, rather than, you know, like, um, you know, it's going to happen really bad, but, you know, the Murphy's Law, you know, so it's, so it's, it's, it's you have to really understand um, the, 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 the elements of, of providing a safe environment for, for the children. And I think like it goes again with time and, and, and you, by, by, by studying early childhood education, you would actually really understand how it goes in the classroom. Right. Yeah, that, um, having 10 eyes all, all around your head, <laughs> yeah. but also stepping back and watching and allowing yes. things to kind of run their course before, sometimes we intervene way too early. Mm. So that's true. Uh, what about uh, like superhero play and like the kind of, of rough play that sometimes we see, especially in four and five year old boys in particular? Um, I know in, in my setting, we have had some disagreements with what parents think is acceptable versus what teachers might think is acceptable. Um, and I'm wondering what, how you would approach that kind of situation. We, um, I think if it's safe and if it's inclusive, mm -hmm. um, that's, our, that's our first, Kind of our first evaluation and we'll have a conversation with the children 
Um, we're we're pretty firm on a no weapon mm. um, on a no weapon at, no weapons at school, um, and so guns and you know, the, the toy Lego or fingers anything that can turn into a gun. Um, we're pretty firm that there's no weapons at school. Mm -hmm. um, superhero play, we will we will talk with the kids and kind of evaluate what is it that they are, what is it they're playing, what are their rules, mm -hmm. why, and does everyone feel good about it? Mm -hmm. And I think that's probably the the critical questioning with the kids is does everyone feel good about this? Mm -hmm. um, and making sure that superhero play uh, doesn't turn into targeted play or ostracizing mm -hmm. um, other children. And so that one, that one takes some conversations mm -hmm. and it's a really good uh, group discussion with children. Um, and oftentimes what we find is they don't, it's a new way for them to think about it. Um, and kids will work out either new and different rules um, or they'll kind of move into a different direction. Um, mm. So it's it's a really interesting conversation, though, to to dig into perspective and empathy because I mean they're little, and so you know it's very much a me world. And asking them, well, you know, the person that that you all are thinking is the the bad guy or whatever, how, how does that person feel? Um, so it's a really important conversation to have. Mm. John? Yeah, for the youngest group, you know, it's all about, for them, it's the aesthetic and the visual stimulation. Like if they see that their superhero, like Ampaman, everybody says Ampaman, you know? So it's pretty much like um, children emulate, you know, other children, like especially in terms of language. So for them, it's pretty much more of this visual stimulated stimulation that they they got. And, and also like they're, it's, it's, it's the it's an animation. It's a cartoon that they see, and for the older kids, yeah, I I I, I go with what Christy said. It's more like a group discussion. It it has to be discussed in the group, and what it what makes you feel good and like what makes you feel bad. You have to really draw a fine line between the two. So I think to have that conversation with the children can also create like other. Um, learning provocations for, for them, you know, like they can actually talk about um, teamwork, they can talk about um, 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 to be to be together, like togetherness and, you know, social interaction and all that. So, yeah. Yeah, those conversations are so critical. Mm. A skilled teacher is really able to bring the kids to some really deep thinking and uh, critical thinking skills and problem solving and articulating things that they may never have really thought about before. Um, it's always really fascinating to me to be an observer of those kinds of conversations. Um, so yeah, thanks. Um, so according to the American Academy of Pediatrics, clin the clinical report that came out in 2018, they say play is not frivolous. It enhances brain structure and function and promotes executive function. In other words, the process of learning rather than the content of learning, which allows us to pursue goals and to ignore distractions. 
So I'm wondering, can you think of some examples from your setting of executive function skills and ways that play promote the learning of those skills? Like executive function being, you know, kind of a mm, buzzword. Um, really? Yeah. So um, because like in my studies, oh, sorry, Christy. <laughs> no, <I'm> just, <laughs> all, all day, every day. I mean, that, that's <laughs> and it's, um, but yeah, play is a foundation for mm. so many elements of development. And as I'm always an advocate for play and for the significance of early childhood development because it sets that foundation for later on. And one of the conversations, um, a, a structure of conversation is always, well, you start at the older end of a child's life mm -hmm. and you start working that back. And it all comes back to how much opportunity did that child have for productive play? Um, and so whether, whether that's executive functioning, um, social emotional regulation, cognitive development, physical development, the more, the more opportunity that they have had for self-directed play, the stronger their foundational skill set is. Mm. And it, you know, it, it, later we get into content um but in younger years and i would i would argue even as we get older content is less important because there's so much information out there and so it's how do you work with the content mm -hmm. and with the information um i'm sorry Brad, the, the, this is my my uh, my soapbox because i i'm always advocating for for, for play mm -hmm. um and what it can build for kids i mean the, your question was examples um we had one project, a kindergarten project start with <laughs> a simple question. The kids were outside and they looked up and they saw the moon during recess, during morning playtime. Why is the moon still up? Um, and so, you know, it starts their working theories about the moon and the sun and the sky and what's up there. And that evolved into a multi-month, uh, multidisciplinary project on everything from planets, moon, space travel, solar system. The kids built a spaceship out of cardboard. Um, they put on a show that was a musical about people who come from outer space. Um, they were building and learning and doing so much. And it was all driven by their interest and mm -hmm. how this how their questions kept kind of meandering down this path. Mm -hmm. um, but executive functioning, cognitive development, vocabulary development, all of those pieces you could, you can pull out from that experience. And it was all driven by their inspiration to find out more about how did the sun and the moon end up in the sky at the same time. Right. Um, wow, that's great. That's a great example. Mm. John? Yeah. So, um, if we're going to go back to the scientific approach to it, like, you know, um, because the part of the brain, like the prefrontal cortex, you know, like it's one third of the brain. So it's pretty much like it's responsible, like what you said with executive functioning, response selection and working memory. So they have like several, um, what do you call that? Like um, cort cortices in, in the prefrontal cortex. And then one study in University of Norway, they did a study about like using imagination and how it affects the brain. So of course, like it, using imagination is part of your play, right? So 
um, it's actually a mental workspace. So it's, it's pretty much like the whole brain is kind of like working when you are engaged through play. So basically, you know, like, for example, if we go to the gym, you kind of like exercise those muscles, right? So that, you know, the muscles get bigger and more developed. Same goes through the brain. So you have to exercise it, you have to use it so that, you know, it will develop like, you know, typically. And I, I think like in terms of that, with the executive functioning and res response selection and working memory, it's very important for us to kind of like select activities for the children to, to be more productive. And I really like if the children would ask you questions that you don't know the answer to. Like for example, um, uh, I was playing the piano and this um, five-year-old girl said like, oh, how can this make a sound? So I had to show her the inside of the piano because like I really don't know the mechanics. I, I just played the piano like electric keyboard before and now when I had this big piano in front of me. So I had to show her what's inside and we started playing. And then we found out that, you know, there's like little tiny things that's kind of like, you know, tapping the strings and all that. And it's made of a string instrument as well. So that conversation is more like for me, um, an example of a working memory for both of us because we kind of like have to learn from it. And now I know that I can share it with you guys. And also like um, the cognitive process of like, when we found out that this is kind of like how it works, then we, be we became knowledgeable about the piano. So I think it's very important for us to kind of like ask questions sometimes that we don't know the answer to. Because like if we, if we know the answer, so there's no point of learning it together. I always see children as a learning partner rather than one vessel, one way vessel, you know? So it's very important for us to provide as I've said earlier, the learning provocations and 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 uh, um, the the right materials for them to to explore. You know, like when we have the term in in early child education, that the systematic experimentation, exploration, and discovery. And I would add a little as their stimulation as well. So because you need to stimulate the child's brain every single day. You know, and it's good for you too. Yeah. I think it was um, Stuart Brown who said yes. nothing lights up the brain like play. Yes, yes. Um, yeah, and I love that you both had examples of questions that children asked that you didn't necessarily know the answer to right away. Mm. Um, that's really fantastic. Um, at the end of the day, though, we are educators. Um, so I wonder how do you assess and document play and show learning growth and development to, um, to parents, to future teachers? Like, how does that work in your setting? What, what are your thoughts on that? Documentation and assessment. Um, we, do, we do a few ways, um, different paths of documentation. So daily, we do seesaw posts, mm -hmm. which kind of capture the it's like it's like an Instagram or it's a pictures mm. with text and Seesaw captures the, um, the in the moment thinking and the questions that are arising and the directions that children might be taking ideas. Um, we do portfolios as well, and so those are kind of you know hardbound not hardbound hard copy old fashioned work samples. Um, mm -hmm that show the progression of a child's thinking and skills over time. Um, learning stories about a 
project. Mm. I would say really capture the evolution of a project. And mm. um, I think those are perhaps the most powerful in terms of telling the story of play. Um, mm. For example, that um, the, the example I gave earlier on, on the children studying space. In any one moment, if you had walked into the classroom, it might have looked productive or it might have looked like complete chaos. Um, and so building the, the story of that project through a learning story, it really captures the, the, process, of, the process of learning, um, especially for adults. The kids get it. They don't need the explanation. But for adults, it captures that process and the intentionality of children. Um, and as you're right, we are educators. And so behind the scenes, what is the intentionality of the adult? Um, how are we extending play? How are we introducing um, new provocations? Um, how are we working with new ideas, build vocabulary and language? Um, how are we shaping challenges for the kids to really question their own thinking, um, question each other and, and build not their content knowledge, but their, their skill set as learners mm -hmm. and leaders. And that really comes from, from that documentation. We also do um, culminations for parents and we'll, um, they take all different forms, but really what it is is the children walking the parents through what, they, what they've done, what they've learned or created or wondered about. Um, and it can, it, it takes so many different forms, but that process of sharing and parents hearing from their child what, what it is that they were doing and why. Um, they really understand the enthusiasm that went into mm. that learning. And it's an enthusiasm or a spark that we hope stays with them for a long time. Yeah. That's true. Great, thank you. So for, for us, we have the class dojo. So I know Christy uses um, Seesaw, but for us, we have the class dojo and it, it's pretty much the same as Seesaw. It's like an Instagram post. Like you can, you know, the parents would see it once you post it. And then there are some also like learning portfolios in there that we actually make for the children. And we have the journals every day. So I think like journaling the, the day, like what you did during the day, it really helps you as a reflective teacher. It's, it's really, really helpful for me to, to contemplate on what has transpired during the day. And it's very important for the teachers as well to kind of like really think like, okay, what did the children do with, with the activities and the provocations that we have provided? And I think like for the next step, you know, earlier, um, Christy was like, um, telling us about the scaffolding. Like it, it's really like this journaling documentation is pretty much like your basis sometimes of like <laughs> scaffolding your lessons. And, and I think it's really important for the teachers to have this base, um, you know, written documentation for, for scaffolding. And also we try to make it to the point that the teachers discuss each and every single day what transpired during the day. And I, I as a lead teacher in the classroom, I always talk to the teachers like, okay, so what do you think we can do better or what do you think we can do next after this? So sometimes, you know, we revisit artworks that has been done a month ago, you know, because like 
uh, art process is like a never-ending process. You can always put in things, you know, like it's not just a scribble. You can sometimes put in like a paint or something. And it, it's really important for the children to revisit the paintings as well. And I think like once you get that process and document it, you would see like how the learning is scaffolding in the end. Um, and also every year we have, or every term we have the, what for, for the university, they, they call it like the combination activity, but for us, we call it the museums. So we, we provide, because every day, every single day we do artworks. So the, the, we save these artworks and then at the end of the term, we kind of like put it out as a big museum that the parents can come in. You know, the parents are like so delighted to see these wonderful artworks from the children because they love the individuality and the, the, the uniqueness of, of the paintings of the children and the 3D artworks. Even though that we're working with 15 um, to two and a half years of children, but once you see them working with an art activity, it's amazing. You would see like, you know, even like a simple handprint and all that, the way they experiment with the colors, you would see the learning process going there. You see that they, they get information from there. I had one example that a child would like to get an orange, but we ran out of orange. And you know what she did? She took red and yellow, mixed it together and put it on the canvas because she learned that from, from the last time that we were kind of like, you know, mixing colors and she went, oh, orange, orange, you know, that discovery is very vital. You know, it's very vital for us to, to kind of like emphasize that, oh, okay, they're learning these, you know, and the, we have to tell these to the parents as well, because, you know, they, 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 they are, are in, the, in the ecosystem of, of the school community, and they need to be aware of what's really going on in the classroom. So again, so going back to the documentation process, we do it every single day. It's not during the time of like, you know, when we have parent-teacher conference. So we, we tend to kind of like really update ourselves every single day of what's happening with each child. So, yeah. Definitely an ongoing process. Yes, ongoing. And that, and that reflection that, John, that really captures just how, how much this work is the work of artists. Mm -hmm. As teachers in the classroom, yeah, that reflection, that responsiveness, mm. um, being able to read where the kids are and then, and then respond, react appropriately to mm. what, what's possible um, mm. is such a critical part of early years. Yeah. So great. Well, I'm so um, excited to have been able to have this conversation with two people who are also very um, passionate about and excited about play. And I can tell that we could probably talk about this for a really long time. Um, but I think it's time to wind this down with one final question. And that is, play is important throughout life. And I'm curious about how you play. What do you do to play? Um, much to the chagrin of my family, I experiment in the kitchen. So there is lots of play happening um, with ingredients always. It doesn't always turn out good. Um, I think another, I draw and paint a lot. I love colors and textures. Mm. And I, you know, every day is play. I've, I've had multiple careers, um, career paths and this, moving into education was just, it was a gift. Um, I had that opportunity later in life to move into education. And I started elementary and kind of moved up and have moved down in terms of years. 
and early years is it, it is play every day. There's nothing, there's nothing that's the same or routine. And so it's mm. a constant, um, it's constant fun and excitement mm. and stimulation. And it really is play. That's what I tell parents. You want, you want your kids to find their love in life. Mm -hmm. And when you feel like every day is play, um, that's, you've, you've found your happy place. Yeah. And so. Oh, yeah. that's fantastic. Yeah. Thank you. John? Yes, I'm also an artist. I love to draw. I love to paint. And music is also part of my life. And sometimes, you know, like I have to be honest with you, um, I play video games with my brother and my friends. So, <laughs> you know, that's part of me to unwind. And I, I, I mean, reading is also, you know, like um, um, my, my, my go-to when, when it comes to hobbies. And I don't know, it's just, maybe it's just me. I love to study. <laughs> so, you know, like, for example, if, of, of course, like I want to get bored sometimes, you know, it's, it's important for us to get bored and just do nothing. But there are moments that I really crave for like, you know, something to study, like a, whether it's a language or something new that is really out of my comfort zone. Um, I really love doing that. So I think that's for me a play. <laughs> so, um, and also like relating that to, to the children's, um, you know, perspective towards play. Christie's right is like every, everything is play for them, you know? Um, and I think, um, the way we look at play right now should 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 change. Like play is something really really relevant in the critical years of early childhood, and I think like we really need to promote more of of that freedom of of choices and how to play and also like to to deepen that understanding and how to be more reflective on what we document and see in the children when they play. And I think like by by studying early childhood education, reading articles. I'm reading books, you know, and I, it really, really helps you a lot. And of course, experience to experience everything firsthand. It really helps you a lot to, as an educator, to understand more about early childhood. Wow, great. Well, thank you both so much. I thank know you. I've learned a lot through this conversation and I'm really excited to start the new school year and to have new and um, fresh opportunities for playing with and learning with the children. And I hope that all of our listeners will also be excited about play after listening to this conversation. So thank you both. Thank you. And until next time. Thank you for listening to TAIP Conversations. This has been a presentation of the Tokyo Association of International Preschools. To find out more, please visit our website at www tokyopreschools.org If you enjoyed what you heard today, please help to spread the word.